0: Turn, if you would, to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. Last week we looked at the first two verses of this chapter having to do with measuring the temple. Today we're going to look at verses 3 through 14 which talks about the two witnesses. And I mentioned last week, it's generally agreed that this is the most difficult section of the book of Revelation to interpret and explain. I think that part of the reason for that is that there's So many different themes and um, images from all over the Bible that are kind of drawn together in these particular parts of the vision. There's a lot of background information then that we need to have in hand in order to rightly understand these verses. So this morning, I'm again going to do my best to give you enough of that background to make sense of these verses. I can't give you all of it, not even close. Had to leave out an incredible amount of verses and Bible passages that would have been helpful. And as I was doing that this week, as I was working on this, it struck me again just how important it is for us to be readers of God's Word. The best interpreter of God's Word is God's Word. So if you want to understand one part of it, you got to read the rest of it. And uh, it's important for us to do that. You may find it helpful in the future, to go back to a message like this and to read the Bible passages for yourself again. There will be plenty of times this morning where I'm just sharing one verse or just a couple verses, but if you were to look at the whole context, there's a whole section that would be helpful in understanding. I know that some of you have done that. Have you gone back and, and listened to some of these messages in order to understand better? I do encourage you to do that. And by the way, in order to help you with that, I've tried to make it, Um, as easy as possible to find things by making the titles of the messages as obvious as possible. So there's no creative plays on words or anything like that in the the message series. So for instance, today's message is simply the two witnesses. So it's easy to find if you know, okay, I want to go back and and catch that one again. So um, hopefully that helps you to be able to continue your study on your own. Let's read Revelation 11, 3 to 14. And just follow along as I read. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. (laughs) These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let me just begin at the end there when it says the second woe has passed. That lets us know we have seen then the sixth trumpet judgment and the seventh is yet to come. And let me begin with just kind of a brief summary of what this vision is saying, and then we'll unpack it. All right. For starters, remember the context of what we saw last week, the measuring of the temple. The temple in this vision is the church, which is preserved and protected while the judgment falls on Jerusalem. But there are several layers here to what we're going to see with the two witnesses. Verse 3, where we began today, starts with the word and. that tells us we're still talking about the same time period here. And in reality, what we are seeing in the two witnesses is the same thing that we saw last week in the temple, but viewed another way we'll see that the two witnesses are the ministry of the Old Testament law and prophets now carrying out their testimony through the church. In other words, the word of God is testifying through the church that Jesus is the true Messiah and King. And Israel is rightly under judgment for rejecting him. We're seeing the ending of Israel and the Old Covenant and the establishment and building of this new temple, the people of Christ, the church. All right, verse 4 tells us that the two witnesses from verse 3 are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, don't get hung up on the math. I know it sounds like two things plus two things should equal four things, but once you see the relationships between the trees and the lampstands and what they represent, it'll make A little more sense. Plus, there is significance to the fact that there are two witnesses. The imagery here is drawn from Zechariah 4. Turn there with me. This is the only other place I'm going to have you turn this morning, Zechariah 4, but we're going to be there a little while. So, remember that last week we spent some time in Zechariah 2. That's because the imagery of the temple city being measured came partly from Zechariah 2. And as John gives us his account of the vision in Revelation 11, he goes now from Zechariah 2, the temple city being measured, to Zechariah 4 with the candlesticks, the lampstands. And just to fill in the gaps, let me explain a little bit about Zechariah. This whole section in Zechariah is about the building of the temple, we saw last week that the temple city that is in mind here is the church, the new covenant people of God. In Zechariah 3, then, there's a vision of Joshua the high priest, and Joshua, by the way, that name is the same as Jesus, means the same thing, There's another version of it, but Joshua the high priest becomes a picture of the removal of iniquity from the people. And through Joshua, they are given the right of access to God's presence. Joshua the priest then serves as a picture of Jesus in his priestly ministry. And then in Zechariah 4, where you've turned, we have a vision of a golden lampstand. This vision is communicating to us the building of the temple. Building the temple is a royal task. Think, for instance of King Solomon building the first temple. Here now, it'll be Zerubbabel who will be the royal temple builder. But in reality, just like Joshua the high priest is a picture of Jesus in his priestly ministry, Zerubbabel is a picture of Jesus in his kingly ministry. Jesus will be the ultimate temple builder. And the temple that he will build is his church. He will do it by the power of the Spirit. Okay, so let's read Zechariah 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain." And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. All right. First of all, think about the lampstand. The lampstand represents the temple. Okay, that's a literary technique called synodok, where a part of something represents the whole. And the lampstand in the temple represented God's presence. Remember, it's God's presence shining on the loaves on the table. So it's God's presence shining on his people. Well, the Old Testament temple was to be a light to the world. So the covenant community that possessed that light, Israel, was also to be a light to the nations. Here's what it says in Isaiah 60 verses 2 and 3, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So there you see the nations are in darkness. The glory and presence of the Lord will be seen on his people. And the result is that the nations are drawn to the light. Being a light was Israel's mission. When we come then to the book of Revelation, how does chapter 1 describe the churches? Their lampstands. Verse 20 of Revelation 1, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And verses 12 and 13 tell us that Jesus walks in the midst of the lampstands. So in the new covenant era, Jesus' presence is with the church, and the church has now taken on the mission of being the light to the nations. Okay, so in the old covenant, it's Israel who's the light to the nations. God shines his presence on them. The nations are drawn to them. In the new covenant, Jesus is the light. He shines the light on his people and the nations are drawn to them. So the church now has the mission of being a light to the world. All right, so how about the olive trees here in Zechariah 4? In verse 14, Zechariah is told that they are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That seems to be indicating the two people who have just been anointed or designated for specific tasks. Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king. Priests serve in the temple. Kings are temple builders. So these two roles, priest and king, are explained separately in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But when you get to chapter 6 of Zechariah, they seem to be combined. I'll just read you an excerpt here. Make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there, or and he, shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. So you can at least see that the roles of priest and king are very closely associated there. The priest wears a crown, the king is on the throne in the temple, the priest is on the throne too, the crown is in the temple, so the priestly role and the kingly role are being combined here. And the prophecy is about the Messiah, the branch, that's Jesus. And it says, he shall branch out from his place. Well, that fits with the picture of the olive tree in chapter 4. Okay. Now notice one more thing. In chapter 4, verse 12, we learn that the trees, these olive trees, have golden pipes running to the lampstand feeding it a perpetual supply of oil. The oil represents the spirit of God. And the temple will be built, verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by God's spirit. So the priest-king will build the temple in the power of the spirit. When we come to the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is both priest and king, He is the temple builder building the church, the new covenant temple, and he does this by the power of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost. Now, notice the pattern that is repeated in verses 6 through 10. Just kind of glance at those verses with me here in Zechariah 4. In verse 6, we have a promise that the temple will be built by the power of the Spirit. Then in verse 7, there will be opposition, the great mountain, which will be defeated. And then later in verse seven, the activity of building the temple is seen. The top stone is put in place. And then the pattern's repeated. In verses eight and nine, the promise that the temple will be built. Zerubbabel started it and he will complete it. In verse 10, there's opposition. There are some who have despised the day of small beginnings. And then later in verse 10, the activity of temple building with the plumb line. If we were to go back to Revelation 11, we would see that pattern in action again. We have the temple, the church, that has small beginnings. Okay, In the day that John is writing, it's got small beginnings, it's, but it's being built. Remember verses 1 and 2, it's being measured and protected, preserved. The description began with temple imagery, and then it kind of continues with the imagery of the two witnesses, the two lampstands. There's fierce opposition from the Jews and eventually from the Romans because of the Jews. But in the end, the opposition will be defeated and the temple will be built. Now, Zechariah describes the temple building project in terms of the lampstand because it's the light mission of the temple that he has in view. Israel was to be a light to the nations. We saw that already in Isaiah 60. You could also see it in Isaiah 42. You can see it in Isaiah 49. I'll just read you verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see the global vision there of the purpose for the people of God being a light. Building the temple is a royal task given to Zerubbabel. Well, Jesus is Israel's true king who builds the true temple, the church, Jesus says that he himself is the light of the world, and then he says that his followers, the church, are the light of the world. In other words, Jesus takes the temple task upon himself, being the light, and then he gives that task to his people, the church, the new covenant temple. You are the light of the world. But that mission will face opposition. So in Zechariah 4, the opposition comes from the mountain, and it despises the day of small beginnings. In other words, the church temple is despised because it's small and seemingly insignificant. What is the mountain? Well, the mountain is Mount Zion. It's Jerusalem. It's the temple mount. That's where the opposition to Christianity originates. And what happens to it? Zechariah 4, verse 7, says that the mountain will become a plain. Jesus says that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. Leveled. And, excuse me, Revelation speaks of the burning mountain being cast into the sea. The opposition will have its day, but in the end, it'll be defeated and the church will be established. Okay, now, let me try to illustrate this with a picture that might just kind of help it to kind of solidify or click in your mind here. This is Zechariah, and then we're gonna connect it to Revelation 11, okay? In Zechariah 4, we have a lampstand, which represents God's presence. It stands for the place of God's presence, which is the temple. And it stands for Israel, and its role as a light to the nations. Beside the lampstand, we have two olive trees. And the trees represent the anointed ones, the ones who have just been given a task. So this is Joshua the priest and it's Zerubbabel the king. And together, they will rebuild the temple and restore its operation. Then we have golden pipes running a perpetual supply of golden oil from the trees to the lampstands and the oil represents the empowerment of the spirit of god to accomplish the task okay now with that in mind let's think about revelation 11. in revelation 11 we have two lampstands instead of one and john tells us that these are the two witnesses in just a minute, we'll see what these two lampstands represent and why there are two instead of one. But together, these lampstands will represent the rebuilt temple. But instead of being Israel, this is the church, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, Okay, the measured temple. And we have the two olive trees. Now, instead of Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king, We now, in the New Covenant, have one person, Jesus, who is both priest and king. Jesus is the great high priest, and he's Israel's true king. And the oil that supplies this church is, again, the Spirit of God. At Pentecost, Jesus pours out the Spirit on the church, giving this new covenant temple, the church, a perpetual supply of power, the Spirit, to carry out its mission of being a light in the world. So, when Revelation 11 verse 4 says that the two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, That's another way of saying what Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, church, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the church is the two witnesses. Empowered by the oil of the Spirit of God. Being built by Jesus into a holy temple in the Lord in order to carry out the mission of being a light to the world by the witness that they bear. Okay, that was verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 11. We'll dig in a little bit deep on verses 5 and 6, but then the rest of it just kind of falls into place. Okay, so now let's look at Revelation 11, verses 5 and 6. First of all, let's answer the question of why there are two witnesses. Then we can identify them more specifically. The reason there are two witnesses is that major legal cases, especially capital cases, required two witnesses according to the Old Testament law. So to establish guilt in order to rightly condemn someone to death, two witnesses had to testify in agreement that the party was indeed guilty. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Well, what we have in the book of Revelation is a capital case. Jerusalem is about to be judged for murdering Jesus. An eye for an eye and a life for a life. So two witnesses against Jerusalem are needed to prosecute the case. And these two witnesses take a legal posture here. They stand before the Lord as those who stand to give witness in the court. You can see this idea also at work in the ministry of Jesus. Um, In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 70 or 72 disciples as missionaries into the land of Israel. And he sends them out in groups of two because they're serving as witnesses. He says that they are like lambs in the midst of wolves. So Jesus characterizes the Jews of the land as wolves. And they're supposed to announce the kingdom of God as they go. But Jesus gives really clear instruction. If you go into a a town and they reject your message, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Two by two, the reason there's two at a time is they're serving as witnesses, okay? So they announce the kingdom of God, and Jesus says that for those who reject the message, it'll be more bearable for Sodom than for these Jews when the judgment falls. Jesus is establishing legal testimony, legal witness of the Jews' rejection of him. The description of these two witnesses in Revelation 11 points to two particular men. And and you're going to see that there's, there's a number of layers to what we're seeing here in these lampstands and olive trees, okay? Who do you think of when you read the description, power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying? Well, clearly this is Elijah who prayed for drought in judgment on Ahab. And who do you think of when you read the description, power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague? That's Moses, through whom God brought judgment on Pharaoh. So we have here Moses and Elijah, two men used by God to bring judgment on evil rulers. And we're told If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Well, in the ministries of both Moses and Elijah, fire came down from heaven on their enemies. Moses, it happens in the wilderness against Korah and those who rebelled with him. And Elijah, there's a scene where the soldiers of King Ahaziah come 50 at a time and fire comes down and consumes them. So the two witnesses that we have here in Revelation 11 are... Moses and Elijah. Now, the law was given through Moses, and Elijah was one of the greatest prophets. Together, they represent the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets is used as another way of referring to the entire Old Testament scripture. Okay, now, hold that in your mind as you listen to the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So the context here is the day of the Lord when God will judge. Those who fear him will be preserved. Those who are his enemies will be judged. Now listen to verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, And guess who's coming next? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, And God says that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, he will send Elijah. So Moses and Elijah and the coming of Elijah signals that the day of the Lord is soon to come. Now, do you remember in the ministry of Jesus at the transfiguration, who appears on the mountain with him? Two guesses. It's Moses and Elijah. And as Jesus and the disciples are coming down the mountain after this, we read this. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. So Jesus is repeating what the prophecy had said. Then he says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, Jesus says, is Elijah who was prophesied to come. And John suffered and was killed. And Jesus says, the same thing is going to happen to me. Guess what? That's what happens to the two witnesses in Revelation 11. They testify, and then they suffer, and they're killed. So John the Baptist is Elijah, and who is Moses? Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. Jesus fulfills this. Okay, so Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet like Moses, and whoever doesn't listen to him will be judged by god the jews who do not listen to jesus will be judged by god so these two witnesses in revelation 11 are moses and elijah the law and the prophets now personified in the new covenant era in the persons of john the baptist and jesus so in luke 16 Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. See, John and Jesus are the two who serve in the overlap of the covenant eras. They are the last of the old covenant prophets. And they are the ones who introduce the new covenant and the kingdom of God. That's what the two of them do. They go around announcing that the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus now is building his temple, the church, and the law and the prophets testify to Jesus. And who is it that believes that testimony? The church. So the church is the heir of the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets Their message is picked up now by the church. So the two lampstands are the witnesses. They're the law and the prophets, now represented by the church. And the church is empowered by the spirit who is given by Jesus. So we filled in the last little bit of the diagram there. Hopefully that helps you to visualize it a little bit, okay? So the law and the prophets are in the role of the two witnesses. The law and the prophets represent the entire message of the Old Testament. And what is it that they are testifying to? Well, first and foremost, the law and the prophets testify to Jesus and his ministry, the arrival of the kingdom of God in the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the law and the prophets are testifying to the truth of who Jesus is and what he says and does. Consider these verses. Let me just buzz through a couple of them quickly, but listen to what these verses say. When Jesus was identifying his disciples, we read that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When Paul proclaims his faith, Before Felix, the governor, he says, But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And then later, as Paul is in Rome and he's under house arrest, he's got people coming to see him. And we're told, Acts 28 23, from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And Paul, as he writes to the Romans, In very well-known verses in Romans chapter 3 about the gospel, he says it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Hear the language? The law and the prophets bear witness the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So it should be very clear that the Law and the Prophets testify to Jesus. They show that the message of Jesus is the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. They testify that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the dawning of the kingdom of God as foretold by the Law and the Prophets. Now think about this with me. If the Law and the Prophets testify in favor of Jesus, then they are testifying against those who reject Jesus. If Jesus' message is true, according to the law and the prophets, then those who reject his message are following the father of lies. So, as the law and the prophets testify to Jesus, they are at the same time testifying against Jerusalem and Israel, who reject Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking about the witness of John the Baptist about him. And he says that John was a burning and shining lamp. Note the mission of John there to be a light. And Jesus also says that his own works testify about him and that the Father testifies about him. But then he says this to the Jews who, earlier in the chapter we learn, are seeking to kill him. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures, the law and the prophets, testify about Jesus. Yet the Jews refuse to come to Jesus. So the law and the prophets condemn them. Jesus goes on to say then, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See here, Moses is specifically said to accuse the Jews. They didn't believe Moses when Moses was pointing to Jesus, and they're condemned for it. So the two witnesses here are Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Seen now in the New Testament in the persons of John the Baptist and Jesus. And the law and the prophets are witnesses to the truth of Jesus. And they witness to the rejection and murder of Jesus by the Jews. So the Jews are rightly convicted in this capital murder case. The testimony of the two witnesses fulfills the demands of the law. And their sentence will soon be carried out. Judgment will fall on them in AD 70. All right. Now look at the rest of Revelation 11. Verse 7 tells us that the witnesses finished their testimony. That means that the lines have been drawn and everyone has chosen their sides. The Jews are settled in their rejection of Jesus and the law and the prophets establish their guilt clearly. And the way is clear then for the judgment of A.D. 70 to fall. Then in the rest of verse 7 down through verse 10, once their task is complete, the beast rises out of the abyss and apparently defeats them. Now, we'll talk about who the beast is in future weeks. But for now, just see that the witnesses are seemingly defeated. We're told that their bodies lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Well, what city is that? It's Jerusalem. What other city could it be when we're told specifically that it's the city where Jesus was crucified? But Jerusalem here is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the word symbolically literally should be translated spiritually. That's what the word says. The spiritual condition of this city is that of Sodom and Egypt. Sodom was a place of degenerate evil. Egypt enslaved and mistreated the people of God and Jerusalem is just like them wickedly rejecting Jesus and mistreating his people the city's response to the death of the witnesses is to celebrate they felt tormented by the witnesses as do many evil people even today when challenged by the law of God And now their evil overflows in a celebration of the death of God's witnesses. Verses 11 and 12, this church, the two witnesses, are given new life, the new covenant breath of life, and they ascend to heaven to be with Jesus, ruling and reigning with him. And then judgment falls on the city, verses 13 and 14. 7,000 people are killed and the rest gave glory to God. Why 7,000? This, too, comes from the story of Elijah. When Elijah felt like he was all alone serving God, God told him that he had a remnant of 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. A small part compared to the whole, but a significant number. Here in Revelation 11, we have the opposite. The 7,000 are those who persist in their evil and their rejection of Jesus and are judged for it. But all the rest gave glory to God. That's biblical language for conversion. So while in the moment, it seems like God's enemies are winning, the witnesses are killed, the church is suffering, in the long run, there's a great number who will give glory to God. Remember, it's only a tenth of the city that's judged. That takes us through the passage. What I'd like to do is this. I want to give you three observations about God and his ways from this passage and then two specific applications to our lives. First, notice the justice of God's judgment. The witnesses establish the guilt of Jerusalem and Israel. Jerusalem is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. It's the spirit of God's judgment that Jerusalem is wicked. And Jesus is the judge who brings all things to light. 1 Corinthians 4, Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And each one will receive his commendation from God. Second thing is this. Notice that God's purposes will be accomplished and his temple church will be victorious. The witnesses finish their testimony. They complete their task. In Zechariah, we see that Zerubbabel lays the foundation of the temple and he will complete it. Remember, he's a picture of Jesus. So the temple, the church, will be built. In fact, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The mission of the lampstands, the church, is to be a witness to Jesus, a light to the nations, and Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. And then he turns around and tells his followers, the church, you are the light of the world. And then he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And giving glory to God is exactly what happened after the judgment fell in Revelation 11. They gave glory to God. Now, notice this verse here. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Note the connection with the very next verse. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets testify to Jesus and therefore, as the light of the world, he's shining this light testified to by the church now. You are the light. The law and the prophets lead to this. Third, think about the pattern of God's victories. How does the conquest come? How is the victory won? Often, It's through suffering. Jesus suffered in order to gain his victory. The great victory that Jesus gains on the cross comes through suffering. And these witnesses suffer and die before the church gains its eventual victory. There will be opposition because the world hates the light. In his gospel, John writes, same author here, he writes, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So while it's true that the kingdom of God grows and increases and in the end it wins, it's also true that there will be opposition and suffering along the way. Herbert Schlossberg, in his book, Idols for Destruction, says this. The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. And that leads us to the first application. We are to be faithful in suffering and in victory. If you're living faithfully as a Christian, the world will hate you. Again, this is John. In First John, he says, "We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother is righteous." So you get the idea. The, the brother who was following the law, obeying God, being that light, shines on the darkness of the sin of disobedience. Okay? So then he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why does the world hate Christians? Because Christians obey God's law. And that makes the world feel guilty. The law and the prophets testify to those who follow Christ and they condemn those who reject Christ. Hundreds of years ago, John Huss fought for the authority of the Bible over and against the traditions of, the, of men in the Roman Catholic Church. He was burned at the stake. His executioners took his ashes and scattered them into Lake Constance so that nothing would remain of him. Those who follow Christ will be hated by the world. Now, because John Huss and others had followed the teachings of John Wycliffe, Wycliffe too was condemned and though he was already dead and buried, his body was dug up, his bones were burned, and his ashes were scattered into the river Swift. Why? Those who follow Christ will be hated by the world. Jesus promises he'll be with us in the world. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, God says this to Moses. He says, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. God was with Moses. But this, this accompaniment of God with Moses comes before things get worse. When Moses goes and he starts to give this message, what happens? The brick-making gets harder. The slavery gets worse. The persecution by the Egyptians is more pronounced. And in Revelation 11, the church suffers before victory. So we should not expect the Christian life to be easy. We should not expect to be honored by the world. Too many Christians make their choices based on what the world will think rather than on what God will think. And we need to remember that God says the world will hate us. So the first application is faithfulness in suffering and in victory. The other application this morning is this. As Christians, we should have confidence in the victory of Christ's kingdom. And to make this point, here's how I want to finish this morning. Let me just read to you some verses from various different psalms to show you that Christ's kingdom will succeed. We could do this from all over the Bible. I'm just going to limit it to the psalms this morning. Christ's kingdom will succeed. Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Psalm 72, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust may the kings of tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute may the kings of sheba and seba bring gifts may all kings fall down before him all nations serve him blessed be the lord the god of israel who alone does wondrous things blessed be his glorious name forever may the whole earth be filled with his glory Psalm 82, arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Psalm 86, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. There will come a day when the kingdom of Christ will cover the earth, and all nations will live in obedience to him. And in the meantime, our task, our calling, our vocation, is to be his witnesses, to be a light to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would impress on our hearts and on our minds the job that you have given us to do here in this world, to be a light to this world. Not because we have anything in us, but because we are reflecting the light of God shined on us. Whatever it is that you've called each one of us to do, whether that's A job that we work somewhere or it's working within the home or it's going to school or whatever the case may be, wherever you have placed us, help us to understand our calling, our vocation to be a light to the world. Would you by your spirit empower us to do that so that you through us can continue to build your church and may the gates of hell never prevail against it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.